children of light. You in the darkness. <laughs> and then there's those in between. I don't know. I'm on the fence of light. Best of both worlds. It's actually very relevant to our message. I'm always glad when Ryan comes up and we ask him to pray, and instead he writes a poetry that lays his guts bare before God and invites us into the pensive heaviness of life and uh, makes it real and uh, sets the stage perfectly for what I'd like to share today. I want to share a meditation. I've had some really amazing meditations in Scripture in the last week and um, some other stuff I want to share with you. And it's appropriate today, even though it's uh, Palm Sunday and there's a certain tradition in how we celebrate Palm Sunday and what the symbols might be of it. Um, Really what I want to do today is close Lent and prepare us for Good Friday um, and the Good Friday service here and then Easter. We are in our tradition coming toward the narrative of the death and resurrection of Christ. And in all of this, in all of Lent, um, as a time of meditating upon Christ, um, it's been a time of wanting to to break through somehow and know God more authentically. And my meditation comes from the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I want to give you three vignettes or icons, images from the scripture that are classic. If, if many of you have been raised in the Christian tradition, you'll recognize these scenes. And I hope that I will give you a, a very different way of thinking about them. If you're new to the faith, um, hopefully I will corrupt you with this way of thinking and protect you from churchianity and movie Christianity, uh, which has done its utmost to really weird out Jesus. Films do a weird job on Jesus. So we're going to look at three moments from the Gospel of Mark, and it's all about the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God and what that means for us. And there's three moments of revelation I want to talk about tonight. The baptism of Jesus, his moment of transfiguration in the middle of Mark, and then his death on a cross. And that should position us for a time of worship, Friday and Sunday. Listen to the very first sentence of the very first gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Messiah, Son of God. Or the beginning of the revelation that Jesus is Messiah, Son of God. Mark chapter 1 opens with that sentence. And then it immediately describes the Baptist, John the Baptist, the last great prophet of the Old Testament. And he is coming preaching a prophetic message that the Messiah is about to break onto the scene here of Israel. He is coming. And we need to make way, make straight the paths for the Lord. And it's essentially a call for Israel to turn away from wickedness, prepare its heart for an encounter with God. Make level the road. If there are stones and stumbling blocks upon your path, take them away that the path is smooth, both for you and your walk, and also for the coming of the Lord, to honor Him, that we take away the stones and fill in the potholes and smooth the road for the coming of the Lord. And then we get, within a few verses to Mark, 
9. It immediately, Mark 1, 9, bring it up. We immediately get to the baptism of Jesus. It says, at that time, when John the Baptist was preaching this message, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once that Spirit just drove him out into the wilderness. Every movie I've ever seen has wrecked that scene. You've got Jesus, who is not a sinner. He is, he is known to be not the sinner. Walking into the water of sinners who are saying, let me be baptized, let the waters of baptism wash away my sin. And Jesus walks in and the whole idea is, you, we don't need to baptize you, you were sinless, why are you coming in here? And then Jesus, look, we've just got to do all things that are right, okay? Just get on with it. And when the voice says, this is my son, it's like a stunt. Why would he say that? Jesus has an attitude of, I already know. Like, yeah, of course. Trinity, second person, you and me, together for all eternity. This is for their sake. The voice will say, you are the son, and that's for their sake. I don't really need this baptism. It's symbolic of something. But I'll go under. Have you ever seen films like that, where Jesus is almost stern and strong, and the voice says, you're my son, and yeah, now you all know. Oh, dove on my shoulder. Little Trinitarian thing going on. Voice of the Father, dove, spirit, me. If you give this gospel a chance to just be itself, and Jesus to just be a man, because he was just a man, and also God, but that theology comes later. He's a man. He is the son of Mary. He is a human, who we know from his early childhood already, he was conscious enough that he would say lost in the temple at 12 didn't you expect to find me here in my father's house somehow he had a pure and a beautiful faith relationship with God but the scripture tells us in Philippians he had emptied himself of everything he had emptied himself of all his divine powers and knowledge and abilities and found himself merely a human and all those things you see in Jesus that he is doing that are powerful are by the power of spirit power of the Spirit. He is a man obeying the Father by the power of the Spirit. He's showing us what pure faith is. And as just the man, Jesus, we have to allow this, that he was listening to John the Baptist and hearing a great prophet. And as a man who loved God and knew he had something special going with God ever since he was a boy, don't you think he loved great preaching? Especially the spirit-filled preaching like John the Baptist? Or that he would love the hymns and the songs and the spiritual songs of Israel? That he would love the lyrics? That he would praise God and dance and sing as a pure lover of God? As a man who loves God? And here he hears the call that all of us should turn from evil. And he agrees. You don't have to be a sinner to say it is right that we should stay away from what is wicked. We should make the path straight and do good. And so Jesus hears preaching of John the Baptist and can say, Amen, Amen, yes, truly. And he too feels the power of the great prophet preaching. And when the great prophet says, All of you who wish to turn from evil, to walk only in the path of goodness, come into these waters. 
make that decision now. Didn't Jesus as a man feel that as well? And go, yeah, yes, I'm coming into the waters too. And the point is, he had no idea what was going to happen. The movies make it look like he knew. Oh, he's Jesus, he knows everything in advance. No, he's the man, the son of Mary. There's many things he doesn't know. He's obeying the call of John the Baptist to commit your life to all that is right. And he does. Enjoy. Of course. And as he comes into the waters of baptism, it says, when he came up from the water, he saw as though the heavens had torn open and a dove descending upon him, and he heard a voice, and the voice said to him, You are my son. You are my son. And I love you. And I'm well pleased in you. Imagine Jesus being blown away by that. He did not expect that. All of his life he could say, I I know somehow my Father is in heaven. And now he hears the voice. And let us allow it to be for the first time. Why would you think that all of the years before this, he had secretly been meeting with God somewhere in the wilderness having conversations? This is to put all kinds of later Christian theology into this. This is the man, son of Mary, in his baptism, hearing the voice saying, that which you may have already sensed and known, I am confirming. You are my son. I love you. You please me. I'm very pleased with you. Being a human, hearing that for the very first time, can you imagine the uplifting of that? Have you ever seen a child receiving unconditional love? I've seen children who have felt ashamed or that they were being punished or that somehow their mom and their dad was displeased with them. And they want to hide and they're afraid and they feel ashamed and insecure. And there's nothing like a little kid when you say, no, you are my child and I love you and I'm pleased with you. To see that little child sighing and relaxing into the love, into the unconditional love, that no matter what, you are my child. I am your father, your mother. I will love you unconditionally. Let him be a human being. Let him hear the word of God for the first time, saying to him, you're my son. I love you. And let that joy be the power of the Holy Spirit that drove him into the woods with the determination now to be the best son he could be, to live a life of pure obedience and joy and service in response to his father. We don't need some supernatural motivation. The Spirit somehow drove him in a weird way into fasting for 40 days. No, it's the sheer joy of response and becomes the beginning of the ministry of Jesus' life. He comes out of that baptism and that time of fasting and begins the service of the Son of God. Now, David, we talked about the divinity of Jesus and the Son of God issue and whether Judaism was ever expecting its Messiah to be God. This development, that Jesus is second person of the Trinity and God, this comes later. This is not here. The phrase Son of God was already used by Caesar The phrase Son of God is used to mean not metaphysical divinity, though I think we do derive that from the rest of Scripture. But here it means 
The Son of the Father is the one who obeys and does the will of the Father. And if you are a son of the devil, as he once accused Peter of being, it is because you are obeying the devil. You are making the devil your father. And the key here is, the son of the parent, or the child of the parent, is obedient to that parent. It's a, it's a title of, it's, it's recognizing your full obedience. Because Mark, in chapter 3, Mark says, anybody who does the will of my father, that is my brother, that is my sister, that is my mother. Anyone who does the will of God is a child of God. And anyone who does the will of the devil, we will call them a child of the devil. That is the way we need to think of it at this stage, at this point. And Messiah means that he is anointed to, be, to speak in power, in authority, and in the name of the king. The child of David. For those of you who care. I'm just trying to get a handle around what it feels like for a human being to hear the voice say, you are my child. That's what I want our whole religion to be. I want to come here and say I'm a piece of meat that got evolved onto a planet that's just going to die pointlessly and in the meantime I have to try to have some fun with my sense perception and whatever else my body can thrill me with. Is that what it's going to be? Or is it going to be that in my intuition from my very heart and soul and gut is that I'm more than this flesh. And to hear a voice say, yes, you're a child of the Spirit. You're a child of God. You're a, you have a mark of the divine upon you. And a huge destiny. And this stuff is your larva stage. You are little maggots. And you're going to sprout. Well, okay, that's not a nice image. <laughs> Caterpillars are nice. They're fuzzy. And then they leave that behind to become those little butterflies. Once you, once you notice this one thing, in Mark, no one else heard the voice. This is a vision for Jesus alone. And it is directly addressed to him. You are my son. I love you. And this empowers him for no other reason. And maybe he did receive other supernatural powers, I don't know. But just the self-esteem and just the joy of the affirmation of that. I would give anything to have the heavens open and divine light shine on me and a voice affirm to me, you're my child. I love you no matter what. Now I don't need that because all the rest of the Christian story affirms exactly that. Exactly when the Spirit came upon everyone at Pentecost and this whole celebration of the gift of the Spirit to the church. We are the sons and the daughters of God. But I still would have liked the experience. But then I'd have to do something with my life. And I'm congenitally lazy and self-centered and don't want the responsibility. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for understanding the rest of you procrastinating, lazy people who start projects and can't finish them. That's me. Next scene. That is how, that is how Mark's Gospel opens with this icon of the baptism of the Son and the voice. The peak of the Gospel of Mark is chapter 9. Everything leads up to chapter 9 and from there the drama changes. Because chapter 9 is another famous icon, a famous moment called the Transfiguration or the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's read it in Mark chapter 9. It says this. I'll read it off the screen. After six days, this is six days after Jesus said something about a vision that you're going to get. He took Peter, James and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. 
And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could ever bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Um, why don't we just put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them all, and a voice came and said, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. There it is again. The revelation of the son. But this time, very, very different. Jesus says to a select few, Peter, James, and John, I want you to come up to a hill along with me. I want you to see something that happens to me. He knew what was going to happen. So something has grown and developed in the ministry and the experienced life of Jesus since his baptism. When he goes there, he has an interdimensional experience. It can only be understood as, with the presence of Moses and Elijah, but this, these people were dead, or at least Elijah mystically had left. But Moses and Elijah had lived centuries earlier. And here they were, standing on the hill with Jesus and with Peter, James, and John. And so you have an actual, you have the Venn diagram. You have the overlap of heaven, or the multidimensionality of the rest of the universe, coming together with earth. Here the presence of the divine light and the earth became one in this radiant light. And other descriptions of transfiguration indicate that not just the clothing, but the presence of Jesus radiating this very, very, very bright, unearthly, spiritual, white light. So white, it's not like anything you've seen in the earth. It is spiritual light. So many references to God is that he radiates, he is this kind of light. And there for a moment, the dead are alive and together in the light with Jesus, and so are the living. Those who have gone before are present, those who are still all present in this light. Also, the symbolism is not to be missed. Moses is the giver of the law. Moses is the written word. Elijah is one of the greatest spoken word prophets. You have the written word, the spoken word, and the living word, the incarnate word of Jesus present there. You have the presence of the great lawgiver and deliverer, Moses. Jesus is called the second deliverer. But also, Elijah is a strange case. He's one of the very few cases of someone who seems to have ended up in heaven without going through normal human death. And there's going to be something weird about Jesus' death too, right? Resurrection afterwards. But at this moment, now the sentence is not to Jesus. Now the words are to those disciples. It's not addressed to Jesus, you are my son. It is, this is my son. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. That's directed now to the disciples, to the believers. What began as a revelation to Jesus is now being expanded. This is my son, listen to him. That is a commandment. Listen to him. And it implies, of course, more than that. Listen to him in order to obey, in order to be taught, in order to follow after him. He will lead you to this place of light, of the presence of God, and of the overlap of the kingdom of eternity with the kingdom of mortality in his presence. Because he is the life, 
And he is the way between these dimensions. And he is the truth. So hear him. Obey this son of mine. He's the son of your God. Therefore he is your king. And you obey your kings. This is a huge point in the literature that Mark has created for us to bring us to this high point where Jesus reveals the divine light and is also identified again as the Son. So now we've had God speak twice. Once directly, you're my Son. Now to the disciples and the believers, this is my Son, hear Him. Now I want to take you to a third place. I want to take you to Mark 15. We're going to go to Good Friday, the death of Jesus. Mark 15, beginning in verse 33, describes the death of Jesus. He has been crucified, and for some hours he has already hung upon the cross, with two thieves crucified on each side. Look closely what's being said here. Mark 15:33. At noon, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three o'clock in the afternoon. It is a sentence making it crystal clear to you a time frame of three hours, beginning at noon, ending at three, darkness. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. They misheard him. Someone ran and filled a sponge of wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud voice, Jesus cried and breathed his last. And then, at that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, the Roman who had seemed to his being crucified, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. There it is again. But notice what's happened. Twice the voice of God has said, This is my Son, you are my Son. But the Gospel suddenly turns the tables on us, and at his, at his moment of taking away the sins of the world, it is the voice of an unbelieving pagan Gentile who is seen to killing him. The man in charge of the soldiers who would crucify him is declaring, Oh my God, he is the Son of a God. Why? Why? I'll tell you right off the bat, not because the temple shroud was torn from top to bottom. Jesus was crucified outside the city. The temple is way inside Jerusalem. It says the centurion was standing right in front of Jesus, watching him die. He was nowhere near the temple. That little sentence saying, oh, incidentally, the, the shroud in the temple that separated the most holy place from public view was torn open. That is a very powerful, important, symbolic reference for the reader to pick up. But the centurion had no idea about it. Here's what the centurion experienced. Three hours of metaphysical darkness in the middle of the day. These guys were spiritual people, full of the religion of taboo and of demigods and of demons and of the divine beings. 
And an eclipse of the sun, they understood, they knew that. Eclipses don't last three hours. A terrifying darkness had come over the land from the time they began nailing up this Jew. And he is no way he was not freaked out and afraid of what was happening. Meanwhile, this man was taking his time dying, and then he calls upon Elijah, which is a cryptic reference all through this book. John the Baptist as the return of the prophet Elijah. We won't go there. And then, when Jesus cries out and dies, the darkness vanishes. That's just what it says. At three o'clock he died, and that's when the darkness ended. And darkness was lifted and light shone again, taking us right back to the Mount of Transfiguration and the divine light. Beautiful play on that. But now it is in his dying. Darkness is dispelled. Darkness, the symbol of evil, the sign of sin, the sign of wickedness. Darkness is dispelled at his death. Light returns, and now the voice of a sinner, of an outsider, of the enemy, of the one who nailed him on the cross, is testifying in agreement with God that was the Son of God we just killed. That's good drama. That sets us up for the sermon that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 to the Jewish leaders about the Son you have killed and put people in the position of what must I do? How can this be washed from me? Why would Mark close with the pagan saying, truly this was the Son of God? What I shared with you earlier is that the way Son of God is used in Mark is the Son of God is the one who obeys the will of the Father. The child of the Father, that, that way of talking in a hierarchical, patriarchal culture, is the obedient one, is the, is the child of. So if you were not genetically related, you were just the slave, but you obeyed the Master, you would be like the good son, the good daughter. Because what Jesus did on the cross was obey his Father's will to the very end. It was an act of obedience. It was what happened in that baptism where he was so supercharged with the desire to carry on being the Son of my Father who loves me now and I want to make him proud and pleased and happy to the very end. We know this because of the story just before the crucifixion where Jesus is praying in the garden to say, Lord, if there's any other way Please reveal that way to me now. I would really rather not die this kind of death, but not my will, but your will be done. There again is the voice of obedience. And that is why Philippians 2 could say about him. And Philippians 2 is the theology of the divine being who then becomes incarnate. It's a later theology. Philippians says, it's the teaching where we learn that Jesus, as, as being divine being, Set that aside. Set aside the glory and the power and the honor and the privilege of being the divine son and humbled himself to be born human. And then it goes on, Philippians 2, 8 to say, and being found human, in human form, he then humbled himself further and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. The picture there is of the divine being setting aside 
the, the radical holiness and purity and perfection of the divine light and entering into the muck and darkness and violence and evil and dismay of this world and then going even lower to die a slave's death in obedience to the will of God. Why? Well, this is what Jesus said. Because I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. That is a metaphor, people. It's poetry built into a Hebrew custom. That if you were enslaved, if you were trapped in either death bondage or other forms of bondage, that a kinsman could come, a relative could come, and buy you out. And it was almost an obligation, an expectation that a tribesman or a relative of some sort would come and have an obligation, family obligation. And for Jesus to say, I'm your brother, I'm family, I'm kin, I chose that. I chose that when I was born of Mary and I chose that absolutely when I walked in the waters and said, I'm with them. I side with all of them. I'm in solidarity with the humans. In all their imperfection, in all their sin and wickedness, I'm with them in this thing. I'm the kin. And in Jesus' own words, he says, you are all living in the lap of the wicked one. You're all trapped in the cycles of systemic evil and violence in this world, and you are in bondage to it. And I've come to set you free, to pay the ransom. He is also called the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. He is the atonement for the sins of the world. He gives his life to put an end to all little rituals of atonement and to be the true atonement. None other than God himself giving his own life that we might have life. And finally, he says, I came to reconcile the world to the Father. That is again the Epistle of Philippians. That God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. The idea there is a go-between. I used this analogy this morning. One of, the, one of the most meaningful things I've seen human beings do is when relationships are poisoned. I think of my mother. I think of, uh, she's gone now, but I think of family strife, especially kids and parents and how often I've seen mothers have to be the go-between. Fathers and sons are what I saw. There's a kind of pride that can come up between sons and fathers. They can't back down, they can't be the first one to apologize. Uh, and men tend to have this aggressive, got to make it a fight thing. And then no one can back down, and no one can say I'm sorry, and no one can apologize. And one is kicked out of the house, and the other one says, screw you, I don't want to come back anyway. And then someone has to be the reconciler, the go-between, to try to change the language, to try to bring some feelings in, to try to help conversation go, to build healing. The peacemaker, right? Or friends and relationships break apart and lovers are broken-hearted and how horrible it is when love can turn into anger and even hate. And some sister or some best friend or somebody starts to play the role of go-between to make their own lives the communication between the two. When Jesus is called our priest, our high priest, the, the word priest is the go-between. The priest is the bridge. So Jesus is God saying to us, I have not come to condemn you, but to save that which was lost. 
And Jesus is also our kin, saying to God, don't hold anything against them. Just charge it to my account. Let them go. I'm the kinsman redeemer. I atone for their sins. I pay their debts. Jesus is the role, the go-between, so that in Him is the reconciliation between sinful humanity and divine love in one person. That's the beauty of the Jesus story. So that sets us up for Friday. We have a special worship service here at 7 o'clock in our, our main room. It's one of our most meaningful services in the whole year. It is in fact one of the highest holy days in Christianity. The only one that beats it is Easter Sunday and the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. But I wanted to give you these three icons of Jesus, Son of God, being called and declared Son of God, to bring to an end the Lent season for us, which will end on Thursday. So if you're fasting, you can hit the bottle again after. I wasn't successful this time. No, I've been really good fasting, but this year, I guess when my mom died, I thought I'm going to indulge myself. So I'm going to fast after Easter. After a really big pig out, I'm going to fast. So I wanted these icons to set us up for Friday, and I invite you to come and be here Friday at 7 for a Good Friday service. I guess I might as well make the other announcement too. And you know that our tradition in this place is to celebrate Easter at dawn. And last year we all met at the Gyro Park, and we're going to do that again this year, Cadre Bay Gyro Park, 6.30 start time for a sunrise Easter service on the beach, usually with crosses and illegal campfires, and bring your own hot coffee kind of thing. So I invite you to be there too as we continue in celebration and worship. Let me just lead us in prayer as we close our service tonight. Lord Jesus, it is, um, has been too easy for us to make you somehow less human by trying to honor you as God and to not do honor to the mystery of the revelation that you are fully human and fully God and we don't know what that means. There is one end of it we can understand. We don't understand the divine, but we do understand the human. And all we see is your unconditional love. All we see is that there's no human being that you would ever turn away. There's no sin or failure that you would never forgive. There's no person who is unclean or outcast who is not welcome. And then you say to us, if you see the way I am treating you, this is the way God is. God's like me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you said in Gospel of John. And so we also receive a perfect human love from you, which we can hug back and we can feel safe with and we can understand. Lord, the scriptures also say that you have suffered and you have tempted and you have gone through emotional turmoil in every way that we have. That you have understood loneliness and anxiety, that you have understood depression and you have understood fear. You have understood every form of human suffering. And then the scripture says, this is so that we can have a high priest who understands us and is compassionate for what all of us 
go through in this life. And so, Lord, we thank you for the humility and the tenderness and the gentleness with which you have stooped to serve us and love us and lift us up and put us on your shoulders and carry us into that light, saying, every one of you are my children, and I love every one of you, and all of you please me. I created you, and I have redeemed you, that you might have the glory of being the sons and daughters of God. We thank you for this gift in Jesus' name. Amen.